This episode is part of the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week of Data Mesh Radio. The summit takes place May 5th and 6th in Stockholm. The Hyperite team, who is running the summit, is giving away an in-person and three online tickets, as well as providing a 20% discount code for Data Mesh Radio listeners. Please see the show notes for more details about how to enter to win tickets or for the discount code. Thanks. Hi, this is Vera from Data Innovation Summit. Join us on the largest and most influential annual enterprise data, analytics, and AI event in the world, bringing together the most innovative minds, enterprise practitioners, technology providers, startup innovators, and academics in one place to discuss ways to accelerate AI-driven transformation throughout companies, industries, and public organizations. With over 200 international speakers in this seventh edition, spread across nine stages, six workshop rooms, 140 TIP sessions, and plenty of learning and networking activities in the exhibition area. The Data Innovation Summit is the place to be for all professionals and organizations working with utilization of data and AI innovation for enhancing customer experience, improve operational processes, enable future sustainability, reinventing business models or developing data-driven products and services. May 5th and 6th, all data, analytics and AI roads lead to Stockholm. See you there! Programming notes for the week of April 17th, 2022. As always, you can get access to the interview episodes early on the Patreon. As of now, there are 12 unreleased episodes up there. You can see the episode release schedule in the show notes, including links to the show notes for future episodes to get a sense of what's coming up. As always with programming notes episodes, the bottom line upfront summaries for the interview episodes will follow after this brief introduction to the week. This week is another takeover week, this time for the Data Innovation Summit taking place in Stockholm, Sweden, May 5th and 6th. As mentioned, there is a ticket giveaway and a 20% discount code for folks who want to attend either online or in person. You can see more information about that in the show notes, as well as where to actually enter for the the free ticket giveaway. We have three great interviews with people presenting at the conference, too, as part of the takeover week. On Monday, we have episode 60, Managing Organizational Structure in a Traditional Company. Can you have two solid lines? This is an interview with Daniel Engberg at uh, Scandinavian Airlines. So Daniel and I chatted about the difficulties of creating cross-functional teams inside a traditional company. How can we make sure that we hire the right people and grow their careers while getting far more done than the traditional silo by competency model? This is the two solid lines. Can you have somebody that's kind of a business line reporting structure as well as a competency manager so that you can get the best of both worlds and and how might we do that, especially in a traditional company. On Tuesday, it'll be episode 61, Driving Value Through Participating in the Data Economy. This is an interview with Jarko Moilinen. Jarko and I discussed his model for thinking about your organization's data economy model, including a few different kind of models that he's got around what are the different layers within a data product, thinking about your kind of maturity model? Are you just 
creating your data for your own usage? Are you creating it for kind of these closed ecosystems where you might partner together to share some data to serve a specific customer? Or are you actually selling your data externally? There's a, a lot of interesting information in there about um, taking an economic approach and thinking about your data from an economic angle. On Wednesday, it's going to be episode number 62, which is Mesh Musings 11. Can we make data mesh, quote unquote, the good place? What we owe each other. This will be about what your responsibilities are to each other when it comes to data mesh. Not just your role responsibilities, but treating your organization like a well-functioning society. How can you participate appropriately in that society to make to push it forward? There will probably be a part two to this one as well in the future. On Friday, it's episode number 63, Driving Domain Maturity Through Empathy, Respect, and Understanding, which is an interview with Henrik Gothberg, who is the chairman of the Data Innovation Summit itself, as well as uh, working through his consulting company at Scania to implement a data mesh there. So I spoke with Henrik who, about his journey over the last decade, you know, within a domain and maturing that domain, and then also his early work at Scania to implement a data mesh. There's a lot of kind of learnings there um, about how you can think about which domains to pick for when you're you're starting out your data mesh journey and thinking about how you mature those domains and how you create reusable practices and processes so that you're not um, treating every single domain as if it's an entirely new thing every single time you come in. You've got to find those reusability factors. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump to the bottom line out front for those three different interview episodes. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? As part of the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week, I interviewed Daniel Engberg, head of AI, data, and platform at Scandinavian Airlines. Daniel will be presenting on structuring an enterprise-wide data organization on May 6th in Track M4 at the Data Innovation Summit. While we didn't preempt his talk, we did discuss a lot about organization structure, not just for the data org, but across the entire broader organization. A key point Daniel made right away was that organizational structure should be tailored to accomplishing your goals. So we have to know what those goals are first. What are the capabilities we need to meet those goals? Quote unquote, traditional companies are often locked into their silos that are structured by competence. So data engineering is in one silo, marketing in another, sales in another, and so on. Daniel is interested in figuring out how we can split up the competencies to create cross-functional, cross-competency teams, but not cause chaos to the organization as a whole, that if you tried to split all of them out that way, that would cause that chaos. Daniel gave an, uh, an example of creating a cross-functional team early in the pandemic as there were some very big threats to the business. Being an airline when no flights are happening is a scary place. The team was able to move so much more quickly than the way the company had tackled challenges previously, achieving their goals in just a few days instead of what typically might have taken a couple of months. 
This cross-functional work also created new information sharing connections across the entire company that continue on to this day. What Daniel learned from that experience, he's trying to replicate as best as he can to make it business as usual instead of a one-off. As the head of AI, data, and platforms, he is working to infuse members from his team directly into more projects so they can be part of the teams and, and decisions instead of handling requests after decisions are made. It also gives his team members the ability to rationalize, rationalize goals. So there is a bet, better ability to do maybe 80% of what would be requested with only 20% of the work in a month instead of the whole 100% in six plus months. Where, where is that value cut off where it costs more to um, for every additional bit of value than that value is actually worth? This way they can negotiate instead of just take requests. For Daniel, product owners must start working to gather the competencies they need on their own cross-functional teams. But that can cause issues when those domains actually start to hire when they lack strong knowledge in that competency, such as domains hiring data scientists when they have no idea how to find a good data scientist whose capabilities match their needs and goals. Or do they even want a data scientist instead of a data analyst? <laughs> then the career growth aspect gets scary too. Does a product owner need to know how to grow the career of 10 different types of widely varying roles? Or does the person that's embedded into that cross-functional team not really have the career growth aspects of people knowing what they really are supposed to be doing and, and where's a good career path and trajectory for them? So then they leave. We talked about the challenges of dotted lines versus solid lines between a functional manager and a competency manager. Who do you listen to? Can we have two solid lines for reporting structure? Daniel believes, and, and I agree, people want managers who understand their day-to-day -day work. As stated, hiring into domain teams directly is very tough. Competency leads need to ensure the company has the right talent and the right amount of talent, and then work with the domains to place resources into those domains. It's a great point that Daniel made. Per Daniel, there is also the natural resistance to change with changing responsibilities. Employees end up worried. A new way of working always causes some amount of fear and obviously some amount of, of change and churn and things like that. Daniel and Scandinavian Airlines are currently trying to do this with some of their competencies. One tip Daniel gave for making change a little easier to accept is to very explicitly lay out expectations, heavily communicate, in fact, over-communicate, and clarify so we can take the fear of change head on. What will it mean for your job security? How are people going to work together? What's really going to change? Be clear how you want it to work. So people can adjust to meet the goals, not the implied structure. You know, you say, okay, this is the way it's going to work on paper. And people try and follow the letter uh, of what that is on paper instead of what are you actually trying to achieve? Daniel finished up by talking about how data governance is still a major challenge in traditional organizations. They're looking to make the data cover governance as close to the product teams as possible at Scandinavian Airlines. The decisions should be owned by the product teams wherever possible. 
when turning over those responsibilities to the domains, it is important to give them good decision frameworks and also let them know they have a backstop in a centralized governance team if they need help. So with all that, I think you're really going to get a lot out of this conversation about how to manage your organizational structure and how to think about change within that, especially in a more traditional company. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? As part of the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week, I interviewed Jarko Moilinen, a data economist and the country CDO ambassador for Finland. Jarko will be presenting on data monetization and related data value chain requires both data products and services on May 6th in track M6 at the Data Innovation Summit. Jarko is a approaching, measuring the value of data, and then trying to extract that value from data from many different angles. He's thinking about data products, data as a service, data as a product, etc. Per Yarko, treating data like a product can apply a lot of the learnings from the API revolution. This time around, we can skip a lot of the sharp edges and not cut ourselves nearly as much. APIs are about an interface to value creation. How can we treat data the same way? We discussed the difference between return and return on investment. A data initiative may have a very high return, but if the investment to get that return is very large, it can be a bad initiative. Yarko coined a new concept on the call, the half-life of data value. To Yarko, for a large percent of data, the value of that data starts to fall considerably over a relatively short period of time. How can we extract the value when it is most valuable? If the half-life is weeks, days, hours, or even less, how do we set ourselves up to get the most bang for the buck, so to speak? Yarko is firmly in the camp of intentionality around data. We can't keep betting on this data might have value or collecting data for the sake of collecting it. The data cleansing after the fact is difficult. You know, what was the context at the time? Can you enrich the data further, et cetera? And the cost to do so is typically quite high compared to the value. And you keep incurring costs just to keep the data around in storage. If you ascribe to his data half-life theory, the value diminishes quickly. So keeping around so much data you aren't using is just, why? (laughs) Yarko's data economy model has three layers that he adopted from the API model and then adapted specifically for data. The bottom layer is private or internal to the organization only use of data. In Yarko's view, I, I don't necessarily agree, but I think it's a good framework. This is typically for organizations that don't have the capabilities to productize their data. If they can move toward productizing, it will enable reuse, not just for themselves, but potentially third parties. My disagreement is that there's often data you would not be willing to share as it is 
is too valuable. So being at the bottom layer does not mean you don't have the capability to participate at a higher level. It may be that you have specific reasons not to do, whether that's economic or legal or ethical or, or anything like that. The middle layer in his three-layer uh, API economy or data economy is to have closed sharing agreements with other organ organizations, creating data sharing ecosystems, very tightly knit uh, ecosystems. These ecosystems are typically very limited in the number of other organizations involved. They're often also about creating value for a joint purpose, such as two suppliers sharing data specifically to meet a customer need. To participate in the data economy at this layer, you need to productize your data enough to make it generally understandable and relatively easy to use. The top layer is kind of the one most people might think of when they, they hear you know, productizing your data and, and the data economy, which is putting your data out on, on a public data marketplace. Organizations participating at this layer are packaging data or even manipulation mechanics, such as algorithms for, for the data for sale to third parties. Yarko also has four key elements that define a data product in his mind, whether that's a data mesh data product or, or not. So the top layer is the technical data flow layer, really how is the data processed, created, stored, you know, all of that kind of infrastructure aspects of it. The business plan layer is the second layer, and that's like plans for the data, really what is the business objective of the data product? Why does this data product exist? Third is the legal layer. Like, what are the conditions for using the data? What, what are people legally allowed to do and, and how? Uh, and then the fourth one is the ethical layer. This is becoming more important in, in the AI space, but we should think about ethical use in all aspects of data products. Sarita Bax at JPMC talked about this kind of concept in her episode of what are the ethics around using the data? Not just can we do it, but should we? For the business layer specifically, Yarko recommends adopting things working elsewhere. So he has another three-layer approach. And you could look at that as kind of the bottom layer being the legal layer as like as in the, the business aspects of what's legally allowed. The middle layer is a machine-readable layer, and the top layer must be human-readable. Data that is only one of the last two of machine readable and human re readable is just not really all that useful in, in Yarko's mind. However, within this framework, we can we really only have standards for the technical layer. How can we create trust with the user? How can we think about creating more standards at the human readable layer? That's an interesting question that I don't have any answers to. Yarko talked about trust as a measurement for value. If you can't trust data, its value is significantly less. Khan Chow talked about at Northern Trust, there was a significant amount of post-processing work when they were just doing data services as the data wasn't as trustable or usable. That significantly raises the total cost and thus lowers the value of the data, right? Your return on your investment ends up decreasing because you have a higher investment and you probably actually have to spend more time on that, which again, if you subscribe to his uh, half-life value of data, the more time you're spending on that, the less valuable that data is. 
Garco has been working on a trust index specifically for data products, which is especially applicable in a data exchange scenario. He said he's, he's got some things that are likely to be coming out about that in the nearish future. For Garco, there are three key things to managing data. First, treat every bit or, or set of data as if you'd share it externally. That can mean enriching it and making it trustable, usable, but especially secure, right? Data has a habit of going external in some way. (laughs) Second, make your data actually usable for your scenario. What level of data literacy do you have within your organization so you know what bar you have to meet? How can you find what he talked about is kind of this core 80% in a 10-80-10 split of you know, 10% of people are just completely data illiterate. 10% of people are your best data people in the world. But that core 80% are people that can leverage data that are bought into leveraging data, but you have to kind of unleash their capability to do so. What is that going to drive? You know, what insights can that 80%, that big bulk of your company drive with data? The third key thing would be have a, a ready-made toolkit to mock your data products at that business layer with your consumers or your customers. This is more about the process than, than tooling, but you know, have like a set of canvases so you can share ideas about new data products and get good feedback. That good feedback from users before creating a data product is going to be very useful. You're going to know, you're going to find your users. You're going to find the use cases that people really care about. Yarko summarized his thoughts with let the business people lead the way. If they aren't enabled to lead, we need to educate them so they can leverage the data. If it's just the data people trying to lead, we're going to be lacking so much of the business context within each of the domains. So we've got to really make it so that those business people can lead the way um, and that we, they can leverage the data themselves. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? This is the last of the interviews for the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week. I interviewed Henrik Gothberg, the founder and CEO of the consulting company Dareducks, the co-founder of the Airplane Alliance, and the chairman of the Data Innovation Summit itself. Let's start with some conclusions slash advice from Henrik. When working with other departments in data mesh or not, you need to start from respect, empathy, and understanding for people in different roles. You need to understand what those roles do and why they matter and what's challenging about them so that you don't just kind of write off those other people. You need to build those relationships to work together. When you think about maturing a domain or or a process in general, a big bang approach very rarely works. You need to think about evolution, not revolution. To find a good pathway to maturity, start with the domains already on the leading edge, trying to get the laggards to catch up instead of focusing on those who see value in maturity is going to lead to tears. Look for the innovators. Much like Sheetal Pratik recommended in episode 24, start with less complicated and high-risk challenges so you can learn and develop the right muscles to do things easier in the future. Khan Chow talked about how 
they did that a lot uh, at Northern Trust as well. So I think this is becoming a, a pattern that I'm seeing over and over of don't try to go for something very complicated up front. Focus heavily on reuse, reusable data, yes, but also templates and other easy path type enabling things. Start with an initial domain, but move on to adding a second domain quickly if possible when you're doing data mesh. Templates will help you get to value quickly when you are moving into a new domain. It's okay to skip automating or building out a great solution for certain pieces of your data mesh implementation up front. What will get you in trouble is building half solutions that end up as major pain points. This is a, the biggest source of unintended tech debt. To succeed in data mesh, you need to get to a place where you have broad reusability. Reusable data, reusable processes, reusable templates, reusable tooling, etc. If your business people don't understand they own the processes and the data and the data, right? Focus on that and the data. Your data mesh implementation is much more likely to fail. So again, those were some conclusions that I took from what Henrik had, had given in this episode. Some more background and other color. So Henrik started, he covered his journey from 2012 to present in most of the first 30 minutes of the interview. From joining a domain so he could add analytics capabilities to that domain to building out a large data and analytics central team at the same company to joining a new company in 2019 to help them implement a new data strategy, which has evolved into implementing a data mesh. Henrik joined uh, Vattenfall to build out the data and analytics team inside the sales organization. They had a multi-country domain with different maturity levels across each country. So each country would be a subdomain in a domain-driven design sense. They needed to improve the data and analytics capabilities and operations in all three countries so they could have strong data and analytics capabilities at the country and the broader European level. The team had some technical savvy, but they were struggling with actually getting the data. The data was locked into the source systems. It was difficult to even do basic customer analysis and data science, not to mention anything fancy. So again, this is a, a, a story that many people have felt or are commonly hearing about. It's very difficult to get the data out of the source systems. In 2015, Henrik became the business intelligence officer at Vattenfall. That meant taking ownership of the centralized team with lots of core data and analysis responsibilities. A big part of the role was owning, providing costs in very granular ways. So they needed to try to move to a very standardized reporting model for the profit and loss statements. A big change that Henrik saw in that time was in customer maturity. When Henrik first started the BIO rule, people were mostly consuming reports. They moved more to consuming data sets and even raw data. As part of that, they, the overall team often moved from ETL to ELT, which also caused some major headaches, as many have seen with implementing a data lake. 
So I think there's a lot to learn from from kind of that experience as to it's good to go <laughs> towards the data sets and the more raw data, but ELT can get you into a lot of trouble. All of that background maturing the data and analytics capabilities ha- helped Henrik when he joined Sconia, a truck manufacturer in their financial services division. The culture of the company was already very decentralized and modular, which can set up well for data mesh, but that also meant domains were very independent with limited standards or standardization around data enterprise-wide. So it wasn't really in the company culture to think about how does this impact the broader company. There weren't those kind of standardized interfaces for good data interface interconnection between interoperability between the domains. They had a big data lake implementation with a good raw data layer and a semantic layer, but the analytics layer on top of that was lacking. The centralized team was struggling to even manage the raw data layer from a governance perspective. And that centralized team was feeling very increasing strain from issues of trying to manage the data pipelines to get the data into that data lake. Henrik mentioned the necessary evolution process for domains. A big bang approach very rarely works. And Henrik started with the domains in the innovator category as they were the most bought in on the concept of domain maturity. And it was just easier to kind of push them forward rather than try and bring the laggards up to speed. As part of this process, they were able to decommission many large data warehouses. To start, Henrik focused on what was valuable to build for the domain at that micro level, instead of valuable to the greater organization. Again, that kind of starting at what's going to be valuable for the domain instead of let's build out this large implementation, let's build out all of our standards up front, things like that. That way, he could mature that domain much faster. And if you get to a place where there are multiple mature domains, those domains are better prepared to work with each other. There was a focus on building reuse wherever possible, not just reusable data, but what templates and and other quote unquote easy path things could the team create. After year one of focusing on creating value kind of at the data product level individually, Henrik and, and Scania started to focus more on creating value at the overall mesh level. This is where data product interoperability really can come into play or that mesh experience playing a lot of those things. Before you get going on a data mesh journey, Henrik recommends spending the time to really plan out how you think your implementation will work and how it will create value for the organization. And what will be the near-term value adders and what will be the long-term value adders? I think this is coming up quite a bit of you want to set your your kind of North Star for where you're going to go with your your data mesh implementations. And that, that North Star really shouldn't change, but kind of your general plans definitely will along the way. And it's totally fine that those change. You have to actually be flexible to those changes. Henrik strongly believes in either taking challenges on with the intention to get to a good solution now or not tackling that challenge at all. The half-assed solutions just lead to far more pain. So either commit to take it on 
now or leave it entirely for later. Another piece of advice is to not have the domain teams just hire without consulting the central team, especially if there is a central team around that competency. Daniel Engberg in his episode mentioned something similar. Look instead to embed people from that central team into your domains so that the central team can understand the friction points and build out templates to address that friction again so future domains don't have to to run into that same friction. For Henrik, it's key to find the right people in each domain who can be a quote-unquote sensible buyer. There needs to be a high level of trust between the business and IT, so you need someone who can develop a strong relationship with IT. This might not be as relevant for a lot of the companies that are moving away from the IT model, the centralized IT model, but especially as you're starting out, it's really, really important to kind of align your technical people and your business people and finding somebody who can really bridge that gap well is important. For Henrik, you need to start from respect, empathy, and understanding for people in different roles in order to actually form a strong relationship. Business people often think it's not that hard to set up your data and analytics processes well. You should focus on investing time and energy with the key players to develop a good relationship, whatever role you're in. That way, it is much easier to get to each other's context because With that context, you can move forward together. Henrik wrapped up talking about to succeed in data mesh, you need to get to a place where you can have broad reusability. Reusable data, yes, but reusable processes, templates, tooling, etc. He also believes that domains, especially the business people inside the domains, need to understand they own the business processes and the data. That and again is quite important. So with that, let's go ahead and get to the episode. 